Hey there. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few weeks and, um, you know, it's been hit or miss all year, hasn't it? Uh, my year has gotten extremely busy. And so uh, some of you know the story behind that. Some of you don't, but it's okay. I'm not going to re-explain that here. Um, but I am excited to have this for you. And so years ago, uh, Oscar Romero was um, given a sainthood status uh, by the Catholic Church. And so what happened was I had questions. I reached out to a friend of mine, Paul Thomas Darzelek, who kind of walked me through the history of that because he, in different ways, lived parts of it and is connected to it in ways that I am not. Sainthood as well is something that just confuses me as a person, uh, less so now, but still a little bit. And so I reached out to him. I had questions. And because of the generosity of the kind of person that he is, he recorded the answer and sent it to me. And it was multiple hours long, which is really cool. I mixed that and broke it apart and decided to share it with the world. And so for some of you, that would have been back in the first year of the episodes. You would have heard it intermixed with a conversation about prophecy in the Old Testament with Walter Brueggemann. But for everyone else, parts two, three, and four were never really heard because I had that blocked behind the paywall of Patreon. And the more that I thought about that, I don't like that. As many of you know that are on Patreon, I have slowed down producing content as much there, uh, though I am still extremely grateful for the people there because they continue to allow this to happen. I'm still mulling over how I best want to use the time and energy it takes for the podcast to continue to be a thing as my time and energy is being pulled in other directions. A lot of that is because my kids are older. Uh, again, when I started this show, I only had two kids and one that was like an infant. So I had three kids. Uh, but now one of my kids is a teenager and they're all doing different things. And it's been a lot of years. It's crazy to think how long that this has been a deal. And thank each and every single one of you for that. Either way, I'm digressing. So I put episodes two, three, and four on Patreon, and not a lot of people have heard those. But this is a story I think that needs to be heard. I had intended to release this around the middle of October, because that is the anniversary of when Oscar Romero was sainted. I don't think that that's the way that you say that, but I've said that and I'm not going to fix it. So that's what it is. And so what I'm going to do is over the next month, instead of doing bi-weekly episodes, we are going to do weekly episodes because I don't want to stretch this out for two months, but I'm going to give you all four of these. And so I think it's a cool story. And I'm really thankful that Paul put it together. I am also not going to fix the past editing. And so if it sounds different, it's because it was recorded on a different system and setup. And, and uh, yeah, so here we go, a four part series. I hope that you come back next week. And if you learn anything from this, and honestly, I'm going to listen to it again because it's been long enough that I don't remember a lot of a lot of it. Email me, email the show, shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter or the, the places that you shoot messages at. I would love to hear what you're learning from it. Share it with a friend. It's an amazing story. Archbishop spot was vacant, and the church very intentionally picked a guy, mild-mannered fella, 
faithful to the church, almost just not a political bone in his body. Uh, And they picked him precisely for that reason. They said, we need somebody who's not going to come down on one side or the other. We need an archbishop who is just faithful to the church and to the Vatican and who isn't going to stir the pot, who, from whom we're not ever going to hear any kind of rhetoric. And they chose a mild-mannered sweetheart of a man named Oscar Arnulfo Romero. So he enters into the position of archbishop in this environment. And there's a catalyzing incident in his life. Now, the church, by its nature, you know, it, yes, it attends to the sacramental expectations of the rich and powerful in the city. But the point of the church is to lead all Catholics everywhere. Well, there's a lot of priests, deacons, lay people. They're assigned to very poor communities. And this is a time when being associated with the poor in any way is seen as being against the status quo. Picture McCarthyism in the United States. It was an environment in which people are turning in actors for for being communists, allegedly. It was an environment in the United States where Charlie Chaplin made a movie in which he played in a silent movie. He's an immigrant, and he kicks an immigration officer in the butt. And the U.S. government said, that is a subversive activity. And he, he wasn't denied a visa. He couldn't come denied entry into the United States over something like that. Well, that's the big brother that the Salvadoran government is looking up to, is the client state of, receives tons of foreign aid from, now, we receive foreign aid. That's just money that goes straight to the government. Why would we pay that kind of aid? Well, to make that government friendly to us because we're getting tons more money through commerce and through the system that we've set up wherein hacienda owners who are friendly to our interests own everything, keep the people beaten down by violence when necessary, and it was often necessary, in order to keep the status quo of the quote-unquote capitalist system. We call it capitalist, but these are massive market distortions uh, when you're suppressing people's movements in this way. So Romero is selected to be archbishop, to lead the church in this time. He becomes archbishop in 1977 in February, and almost immediately, I think it might have been in March, a personal friend of his who is a priest named Rutilio Grande is murdered by the government. Why is he murdered? He's murdered because he works with poor and disenfranchised people. Now, you've got to imagine just how arbitrary some of this felt to some people. Even after the revolution got going in full swing, which is going to happen really soon. Right now we're talking about five different armed factions in local skirmishes and things like that, for fighting for local causes. Even once the, the revolution is in swing, well, guerrilla soldiers, they don't line up in military uniforms like, you know, British redcoats. 
they're indistinguishable from the people. So how, how do you defeat them? Well, the Salvadoran government was getting advice on how you defeat them. And it, it's a blunt instrument. I mean, and they were using tactics that, based on U.S. advisors that we were advising. You know, our precedent was the Vietnam War, and that was an equally difficult war to fight. And so empathy with the cause of the poor at all is seen as the seeds of revolution. And Rutilio Grande was not. He was a rural parish priest. He was not a military agitator, but he did speak out for the rights of the poor. And for that, he was murdered. And Romero saw that right before his eyes. Now, a lot of people describe this. And if you see the Romero movie, you might come away with the impression that Romero undergoes a conversion. He actually resented that, resented calling it a conversion. He saw conversion as repentance. He saw conversion in a biblical sense. He says a conversion is a conversion where you're going away from God and turn towards God. Paul on the road, that's a conversion. A conversion might be the other way. You turn away from God. And he would say about himself, I did, I underwent no conversion. I was doing my honest best to go towards God the entire time. And the world changed around me. People started murdering priests around me. Rutilio Grande was not the only one. There would be other priests. There would be United States, American church women, nuns. There would be Jesuit university professors just massacred in, in literal massacres. Um, church women from the United States, just these sweet little old ladies raped and murdered to send a signal. Don't get close to the poor. Your ears get infected when you start listening to them. The Salvadoran government didn't want little nuns in El Salvador talking to their congregations here in the United States. In fact, the CIA infiltrated small groups of, it was a, there was an organization called CISPES, the Center in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. And often it would be like little Catholic nuns who would join chapters of CISPES because they would hear from their sisters in the congregations in El Salvador. They would hear the news of what's going on, and it didn't look anything like what was happening on ABC, CBS, and NBC. Those were the news stations in those days. This is a pre-internet time, but it's a pre-CNN time. And so this is the environment in which a lot of people who minister just in the course of their duties as, as church workers minister to poor people and love them. And they see things like transplant operations, scorched earth campaigns. Operation Phoenix Vietnam became Operation Phoenix Chalatenango in conflictive province of El Salvador, where there were scorched earth campaigns. There was a saying, if you can't take the fish out of the water, take the water away from the fish. And so the government would fight this war on U.S. taxpayers' dime by just going around killing cows, chickens, burning fields, trying to dry up 
any kind of wealth generation on which uh, these rising little insurgent movements would depend. As you can imagine, a lot of injustice gets carried out in this context. And in light of Frutilio Grande's murder, it's this injustice that Archbishop Romero starts to denounce. One more illustration of that kind of injustice, but also just the how arbitrary things felt. A lot of people were killed just for possessing a certain translation of the Bible. We mentioned it earlier, La Biblia Latinoamericana, the Bible in common person's Spanish. And it was associated with these poor peasant communities that were re-questioning everything from their perspective in light of what some of them came to call in intellectual circles God's preferential option for the poor. For an ordinary person, the way they experienced it, is just reading the stories of Jesus and going, look, these Galilean fishermen, they're just like us. These folks from the shores of Galilee that are speaking truth to power in Rome, that's us. We're in this story. And so here is the government needing to keep peace getting a lot of money from the United States in order to keep the order, and they need to squash, they need to instill fear in anybody that might rise up against them. And it's starting to happen, and people are talking about revolution, and there are indeed five different little paramilitary people's movements. These started, for example... Literally, this revolution begins with machetes or the 22 that you might have, you know, that you keep on the farm or lots of it was just people with their machete going and attacking the people that drove them off of their land and then seizing their M16 and going, hey, now we've got this to work with. Another question on the list was how specifically did Archbishop Romero stand against injustice or what what exactly was the way we hear him being a voice for the voiceless a voice for justice how specifically did he do that the most significant ways are what people in el salvador then and and many now call a ministry of accompaniment or a lot of people refer to it now as incarnational ministry the very thing about the christian faith is that through jesus god came to be one of us, to live among us in the midst of our human mess. And every archbishop before Romero, you know, the church fulfills a function, a ritual function of civic religion. The archbishop was the guy who, you know, if you're rich and you can grease enough palms in the church, then your kid will be baptized by the archbishop, not just some lowly priest. And and it's sort of a who's who in the upper crust of Salvadoran society. Romero wasn't like that. He wasn't not like that as a function of, of being a revolutionary or a communist sympathizer. No, it was ministry of accompaniment. He himself was from a very rural community. His family was poor. The people in the village he came from were poor. The people who stood to gain if they were allowed to participate in the political process, the people who wanted education and health care, those were his people. And 
he had a lot of empathy for the rural priest because that's where he came from. And people who ministered to the poorest of the poor, people who expressed self-sacrificial love by taking that assignment in the mountains of Perkin, where you would have to walk a long distance to get water as opposed to living in the comforts of the capital and ministering to the oligarchs, the the coffee aristocracy. Those were Romero's people, and he listened to them intently. And he believed strongly in this ministry of accompaniment as the core of the Christian message, the core of the message of the Incarnation, as Jesus did the same with us. And that itself, we think of that as an act of generosity. Oh, you went off to become the missionary. No, that in this environment in El Salvador, that was a revolutionary act. It was seen as a subversive act. You had a government with a large vested interest in not listening to those poor people as Romero would do. And when I worked in El Salvador, I saw this, you know, this is now he had been assassinated. The war had ended. I talked to people all the time. Maybe the most striking thing about the way the spirit of Romero lived on exactly as he said it would. He eventually came to a point where he knew that he would be murdered. And he would would address his murderers from the pulpit. He'd say, today I would like to address my killer. I want you to know that you are already forgiven, and I pray every day that we will share eternity together in heaven. I pray that you'll repent, and I want you also to know that you will waste your time. You can murder the archbishop. You can murder the bishops, the nuns, and all the clergy too. But as long as there is a baptized one, the church, which is the people, lives on. He used to say, you can kill me, but I will. I don't believe in death without resurrection. If you murder me, I will rise again in the Salvadoran people. In the 10 years that I worked in El Salvador, I saw his spirit risen through the Salvadoran people so incredibly often, through women who bravely fought uh, in groups like the Mothers of the Disappeared, who, who fought peacefully demanding justice, demanding that the government account for their disappeared sons and daughters. That was a tactic of the government was to just disappear people. Anyone who was a suspected insurgent would be kidnapped, taken, killed. Often um, there's a spot in the hills right outside of San Salvador. Now it's a, a romantic little trail with a beautiful view. Romero was listening to all these people. Um, I was in a rural community in, in Perkin, which is the poorest department. Like we have states, they have departments in all of El Salvador. And I, I remember sitting down in a small rural church and listening to a woman tell me the story of the time the National Guard came, ostensibly looking for insurgents, and they just rounded up all the girls and women in the church choir and raped them. And that kind of thing happens all the time. If you ever think that your government is supporting a war on the side of justice where that kind of thing doesn't happen, you're 
wrong since time immemorial. I mean, you can read about it in the Bible. Um, in the book of Joshua, you can read about, you know, God, God ostensibly saying to the people, to Joshua's people, you can take the virgin girls as your own. Well, that happens today in warfare. Give groups of males power and weapons, and they take advantage of that. And one of the ways they take advantage of it is a National Guard kicking down the door to a church and raping the choir. And when that happened, this little old lady said, and when that happened, we called Bishop Romero. And it's adorable that this rural peasant woman, subsistence farmer from Perkin, felt like she would have access to the Archbishop of El Salvador, and she did. And indeed, he dropped everything, and he went out there over bumpy roads, and he gathered the people, and they all got together, and he held a mass. And for them, that was comforting, just to know our cries are being heard, meant so much to people. In this case, they had prepared a place of honor. I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier often in these rural communities communion isn't where you just go up and have a wafer this is the body of christ this is the blood of christ it would turn into a big meal when you see these liturgical churches like the catholic church and and they have a liturgical procession of the elements of communion to the front of the church that descends from the early church in which people would come into the church with a whole meal to share for the whole community. Communion, do this in memory of me, wasn't just a symbolic wafer. It was actually like, have a meal like the Last Supper in memory of me. People do that all the time. And in this case, they had set up a seat of honor, you know, a a table with a tablecloth and a nice chair and, and, you know, the a silverware, like whereas everyone else wouldn't, they eat with their fingers. This, this was a plate with silverware. And this little old lady told me that Romero actually just said, you know what, give that place to somebody who normally doesn't feel included. And then he went and grabbed a leaf off the banana tree to use as a plate, just like everyone else. And he got in the back of a long line and waited and hung out and talked with the people. And that is an instance of just incarnational love being an act of revolution. And the powers that be in your country didn't want you doing that because they knew what would happen. What, what they knew would happen is what did happen. It would be Romero coming back to the city and saying Mass on Sunday. And that Mass would be through the Catholic radio station projected out to the entire country. And oh, everybody, everybody said, oh yeah, we'd go to church and then we'd get home and we'd go to real church. And that was listening to Romero on the radio. Some people said, oh, that's what church became a home church because we would just gather around that radio. And from the Catholic radio station, he would say, you know where I was yesterday? And he would tell the story. He would tell the truth about what happened and what he saw. That ministry of denunciation The people would open the newspaper and they would read the government side of the story. And then they would tune into Catholic radio for another side of the story. This is instead of journalists who are faithful to the moneyed interests. This was an archbishop who was faithful to the cause of justice and love and peace and church choirs not getting raped. This was him, he would in 
very eloquently. He was a very good speaker, and that's why people across the nation were glued to the radio listening to him. And in so doing, he became a voice for the voiceless. Here's another good story. It's the story of Father Octavio Ortiz. Now, I personally was very close friends with Father Octavio's whole family. And Octavio Ortiz is the first priest that Romero ordained as archbishop. He was from a very rural, extremely poor community called Agua Blanca, Morazan. And Octavio had a special place in Romero's heart because what he saw in Octavio was himself. When you were a kid in these really rural, poor communities, like nobody had ever gone to school in Octavio Ortiz's community. There were subsistence farmers, and all you dreamed of was being a subsistence farmer. But Octavio dreamed of getting an education. The way to get an education, if you're a poor kid from Agua Blanca, you know, there's not scholarships. There's not, he didn't have a car to get to a school in a neighboring town. But the church would take you in. And uh, the church is and has been for millennia an educator. And so Octavio, being from a poor community, like Romero, uh, became a priest, and he served. He had a heart for young people. And one day in the capital city, he was leading a youth retreat at a place called El Despertar. This was right down the street from where I lived when I lived in San Salvador in the capital. And he was having this, and... Remember the McCarthyism, the Red Scare environment, the environment where it's assumed that if a priest, a rural priest, a priest from a poor background, if he's gathering people, oh, he's surely he's he's recruiting insurgents for the FMLN or other, you know, whatever armed faction. And so they called the National Guard and the National Guard came out to El Despertar Church and Father Octavio and they, they just plowed in with a tank. I mean, they just knocked down the porton, they call it, the big metal door that uh, you close the road into the churchyard with. They just knocked it down. And Father Octavio went running out innocently going, no, you guys, are, you're making some kind of mistake. And blam, they just shot him. And then four kids ran out and they were like, no, 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 you're making a mistake. He's just a priest. Blam, 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 blam. And they shot four kids. Then they ransacked the church, looking for arms and weapons. And uh, instead, what they found were Bibles, songbooks, guitars. So they said, man, we got to do a cover-up. And they took these four kids and they put army-issue pistols in their hands. Then they dragged him from where they were, dead on the ground, to the rooftops. And then they called the press, the Prensa Grafica, Diario de Hoy. And they said, uh, come on out here. We got to tell you about something happened. There was a skirmish and the press gets there. And Romero heard about it and he got there. And the military is there with the official press. And they, uh, they said, well, there was, a, there was a guerrilla training going on at this church. And we came to see what was happening. And there was a little shootout. There was a skirmish. And... Uh, we killed these four kids, but luckily everybody's safe thanks to us. Romero looks around. It's like, oh yeah, if that's the case, why do these kids have army-issue pistols? Why is there a trail of blood from right here where we're standing to where their bodies lie on the roof? He knew exactly what had happened. Everybody knew what had happened. The press knew what had happened. But the next day, the press 
came out with the military story. And Romero came out on Catholic radio with what really happened. And that was in 1979. So now Romero's been archbishop for two years. And that was the day that everybody said, man, previously these priests get killed. It was, you know, out in the countryside. I just assumed maybe, maybe they were. Who knows? I don't know what they're up to. They've been listening to the poor people. Maybe they were insurgents. Maybe they caught the virus. Maybe they caught the bug. Maybe they were commies. Octavio, man, this happened right here in the city. And Romero, Romero was not lying about this stuff. And that was the day when everybody said, man, you got to, you got to choose who's telling the truth because they're not both telling the truth. You got to choose. Can you believe the state media? Are you going to believe the Archbishop of El Salvador? And a lot of people knew who was telling the truth. And that day Romero's voice got a lot more dangerous. Now, by this time, the oligarchs are saying, we've just got to do away with this guy. He's a voice for the voiceless. This ministry of denunciation. Now, to be clear, Romero denounced violence on both sides. So after this war was done, when the United Nations Truth Commission came and did its report, they did a study, and according to their study, they were measuring human rights violations, who committed them. And one measure of that is extrajudicial killings. And what they found is 85% of them were committed by the government. 15% were committed by the guerrilla insurgents that uh, the government was fighting and that we were support- the United States was supporting the government in order to fight. So that means that if you denounced every single act of violence or human rights violation, then 85% of the time you would be denouncing the government and only 15% of the time you would be denouncing the guerrilla, the, the insurgents. Now in the United States, this was all framed as a U.S. friendly government versus the communist backed guerrillas. Well, it's not quite like that. I mean, they, they were communist backed because that's who came alongside them. The reality of the matter was the United States armed both sides of this war. The guerrillas, the insurgents fighting against the government, bought most of their weapons from the government that they were fighting. Now, why would a government that's fighting them sell weapons to the enemy? Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense if you love money because it keeps the war going. The United States was pumping a million dollars a day into this war. Keep in mind, this is the population of like, it's like six million people. It's like the population of Chicago or something in a tiny place as big as Massachusetts. And in the 80s, a million bucks was a lot of money. And it was a million dollars a day against these people. You, you That should give you an idea of just the grit, the determination of the insurgents. And within the insurgency, it was a really special thing to have an AK-47 from Cuba, a Russian weapon that was a status symbol. Because those weapons were in the minority, most of the weapons, most of the assault rifles were M-16s bought from, you know, Colonel so-and-so in the Salvadoran military. That colonel is never going to see the front lines of battle. And as long as he, there are front lines of battle, the money keeps coming. There was a, 
then-senator named Al Gore, who commented on the Senate floor at one point. He said, wouldn't it be more efficient for us just to invest this money directly into Florida real estate? Think what you want about Al Gore. But there was an astute comment because that's what was happening. All of this money going to the government was being used by corrupt people who then sell weapons to the enemy so that they could have even more money. What did they care if their country was going to shambles? They had a mansion in Miami. They had a mansion in Florida. They would get there on their private helicopter. So there we are. We've got this oligarchical class of overlords. And they start to hate Romero. He is a thorn in their side. They want to kill him. In fact, when the assassination happens, they turned it into a little fundraiser. They had a little lottery where people pitched in some money and then they drew straws to see who would have the privilege of murdering the archbishop of their country. And on the evening before Romero was assassinated, he addressed the armed forces, you know, the the soldiers of the armed forces directly. And he told them that it's their own people that they're killing and that no soldier is obliged to obey a command that is contrary to the command of God, thou shalt not kill. And talking directly to the members of the armed forces, he famously said, he said, in the name of God and in the name of this suffering people whose cries rise up to the heavens every day more tumultuously, I beg you, I beseech you, I order you, stop the repression. So now the government's looking at him and he's saying, no, he's stepping too directly on our toes. From a government perspective, he was a guerrilla sympathizer. Um, they had very little voice. In order to have their voice heard, they marched into the city and they took over the cathedral downtown where Romero was said mass on Sunday. And Romero empathized with them in a sense. I mean, he, he, he was of the opinion, look, if this is a constitutional democracy, then we have to let people participate in it. If we don't give them a voice at the ballot box, if we don't let them give them the right to assemble, if we don't give them the right to form a political party and become and get elected to the legislative assembly so they can express their opinions and the whole legislature can vote on them like you do in a civilized country. If we don't give them that, then the only way they have to express themselves is taking over the cathedral. So if they do that, you know what I'm going to do? I hope people listen to them. I'm going to go say mass at the church down the road. And the government sees that as, oh, he really, he, he loves these people. And now he's talking to our people? I hope that you will join in in the conversation. Give me your feedback. Email the show. Reach out to Paul Thomas. You can get a hold of him at paulthomasauthor.com or butterfliesbook.com. Give him some feedback. Tell him what you thought. 
tell them what you learned. I think this conversation and conversations like it are needed for the church as a whole to come together as a community. I look forward to further deepening this conversation with those of you on the Patreon channels, and I'll see you all there. Thank you.